0: Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com. Due to the generosity of my informers, this week, it's a message from Japan Post. Hello, Japan Post here. Just a quick reminder
1: from us that we'd ideally like you to never send a package abroad. We've tried to make this clear in the past by charging the prices we do, making you fill out insane forms, or occasionally just saying, yeah, nah but our New Year's resolution is to just be honest. We don't care about you sending your stupid parcel of Daiso crap to your dumb foreign family, selling the rare figurines you managed to buy here on eBay back home, and we certainly don't think that any of the Japanese books you plan to send home have any greater chance of being read while they're sat on a bookshelf in your home country. So just stop trying. Japan Post. All we really want to do is come up with seasonal stamp designs. Everything else is a nuisance.
0: Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Season 4 of Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Hello, I'm Ollie Horn. Bobby, how was your break? Uh, it was good. It was good, I guess. Um, getting things figured out with the new house, uh, the new business, and the horrible, horrible U.S. tax situation that I've been tweeting about, but uh, getting through it, starting to see the light on the other side. Um, I think I was away from the show long enough to miss the Bryans, but I was really glad that some of them followed us over to our other show, Rugby, rugby, Uh, we love rugby. Uh, Thank you very much for that, guys. How about you, Ali? How was your break? I needed the break. Uh, I'm very
1: glad to have had it, but I'm also very glad to be cruising with you again for this season four. We made it to season four using that system that we planned out from the very first episode. This episode Mm -hmm. 112, 113? 12. Is definitively what season four is about. (laughs) And uh, also, um, I'm pleased to see that our format is so good, we're going to make no changes for this season. Uh, If I remember correctly, you always start the show by saying who the guest is and then allowing them an awkward pause where the only sensible thing they can say is,
0: thanks for having me, before we carry on with the rest of our opening bullshit. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Joining us this week is Alex Carr author of Finding the Heart Sutra and the seminal works on Japan, Dogs and Demons, and Lost Japan. He's long been a powerful voice for sustainable tourism and for the preservation of Japanese culture, nature, and history. So basically, he is the us of stuff besides riverboats. Alex, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Ah, you said glad to be here. No, thanks for having me. I've been
1: undermined. <laughs> <laughs> that was the idea.
0: Yeah, that's that's part and parcel. <laughs> on this week's show, have you heard about these old Japanese country houses you can buy for less than the price of a six pack of takoyaki? Well, Alex has been working on restoring Japanese Akiya since before it was hip. Today we'll talk to Alex about how the Japanese tourism industry has jumped on board the Kominka bandwagon, and while we're talking about the industry, we'll stop to check its vitals as well. Plus Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby, this week I'll be sharing our list of the
1: best cruises of 2021 and why this year, 2022, will be the year that I can definitively prove that you can step in the same river twice by taking them all again.
0: Also, Japanese river cruises are taking to the waters despite the Omicron concerns. Their secret weapon? They've incorporated the latest American and European COVID strategy of completely giving the fuck up. More on that later, but first, Soap Talk. Talk. Unfortunately, Brian couldn't be here with us this week because he quit. He'll be back. Bobby, I've been enjoying uh, looking at all the
1: renovation photos of you carrying strong wood of your lovely new Japanese home. How's the
0: build going? <laughs> uh, it's good. Um, I, I I will admit that it's one of the reasons that I'm glad to have Alex on the show for for uh, our first show of 2022. Alex, I recently bought not a kominka, not an old Japanese house. It's only uh, 25 years old, but it's very much uh, a nihon kaoku. It's a Japanese style uh, dorokabe, uh, dirt wall and, mm. and thick wood beam construction. And um, I think one of the things that you're best known for is the work that you've done in restoring old properties in Japan, like, like uh, Chiori in Ia, where I had the pleasure of staying. Um well, actually we we met there for I remember uh, that
2: trip. yes. The Sekai
0: for Haken interview. And I don't I don't know I I think I didn't mention at the time I've also stayed in in the one in Ojikajima. Ah, yes. I yeah. think we
2: meant we talked about it at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you've done amazing work on kind of renovating these uh traditionally Japanese uh properties. And I was kind of hoping to to get into kind of like any advice that you might have or Japanese home construction in general and the challenges and the costs of making them comfortable and livable?
2: Uh, well, it's a challenge always. Um, and yeah. one thing you had said your house is just 25 years old, but if it's made of plaster uh, walls and wooden construction, I see that as an ancient Japanese house.
0: Yeah. Because the yeah.
2: techniques involved in building it have not changed. Uh, well they so told re- me
0: that the, the 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 dodo that they used to make the dirt that they used to make the dirt walls takes a year just to prepare the dirt for that.
2: Oh yeah, they let it ferment. It's like wine. Wow. In general, I don't know what condition your house was when you found it. So, and if it was a newer house, you may have had less of these kinds of troubles that that I had for example, at Chiori, which was thatched and mm-hmm. leaking. And had no electricity, no water. <laughs> uh, so we started from zero there,
0: yeah, so the house is in, in generally good condition. it's just the challenges that, that we 're having now is that any choice that we want to make to make it more aesthetically pleasing or to kind of like kind of reveal some of the ways in which it's constructed, or you know we pulled one of the ceilings off uh, and found really great wood beams, and everything that we go, oh, we'd like to leave this exposed or we 'd like to accentuate this feature makes the house less practical so like raising the ceilings makes it colder
2: of course but of course you do you must get rid of those ceilings that's the first thing to to do with any japanese house because they didn't have ceilings except in a few local spaces um and even if they did have ceilings the woodwork above is so stunning
1: you said your house was only built 25 years ago which doesn't seem that old i mean it's old by like Japanese pop star standards if you're a woman, right? It's, it's dead, dilapidated, <laughs> useless. Uh, but but when when they built houses 25 years ago, were they building them using old-fashioned methods?
2: Ali, there are kind of two things that went on uh, post-war. And so mm. 90% of it was just garbage. It's flimsy, bad materials, cheap, you know, uh, uh, tin, uh, pl- plastic, uh, a, a bit of concrete. And then there's a 10%, however which went right on using traditional carpentry techniques. They did the wattle and daub. They found huge, beautiful pieces of old lumber that they incorporated into them. Those exist. And I hope, Bobby, that that's what you got.
0: Yeah. Um huge, huge pieces of lumber. Um, we've we've have my wife has some carpenters in her family and then we've also got a reform company that's coming and, and helping us with some of the, the process. And anytime a carpenter comes through, they look at the way that the wood was used and the pieces of lumber that that were used in this house and are blown away. Really? Yeah, the, um, so, so the washki-style tatami floor room that a lot of times they use for their uh, family shrine or for like an area to greet guests or, or like during New Year's, that area of the house has got a decorative column called a, a daikokubashira or a tokobashira, I think, Alex?
2: Uh, well, there are two different things. Uh, the tokobashira is the one that's on the side of the Tokonoma, and that's often a very fancy, expensive wood. The daikokubashira is a huge, thick one, that's often between maybe the kitchen and the living room, that's kind okay. of the main pillar of the house, and it's it's usually gigantic.
0: I think that's where the confusion is coming in, because the tokobashira in our house, the decorative one that's on the side of the tokonuma, is so big that I could not get my arms around it.
2: Oh, really? And that's... It's well, It's huge. almost like you've got... Yeah, they, bo- they both happened in the same place. By the yeah. way, that room, which is the nice Zashki with the Tokonoma, is where you want to keep your ceiling.
0: Yeah. Oh, keep the ceiling in there.
2: Yes, because it probably has a nice ceiling. That's where they would have yeah. put in a nice one.
0: Yeah, we've got so, a gorgeous carved Ranma.
2: Yeah. So these things have to do... You have to think about the use of the space, the purpose of the space, mm. and the balance involved. And so... I would remove ceilings in bedrooms, kitchen, those areas, yeah. but keep the ceiling in the fancy zashki because it it, it will be more it's designed
1: almost perfectly mm-hmm. with that ceiling. Well, something that has no ceiling, Bobby, is the lengths that we will go to to try and make this show economically sustainable. Uh, so we have some people to thank, uh, namely those that responded to our donation drive during our Christmas special episode. Thanks so much. There's so many people to get through, so we're gonna rattle through them a bit quicker than normal. Uh, but the speed is not commensurate to the amount of gratitude we have for
0: everyone that continues to support this nonsense. So Bobby, do you wanna kick it off? Pat Sheehy bought us five coffees he's bought in the past. He's Contributing again. And he writes, I suspect that I need to give more because I'm a quote, rich Brian. Keep it up and you won't be anymore. <laughs> That's like the opposite of a racist slur, where it's like, you know, I can say it about myself, but you can't say it about me. A rich Brian, we can say that about you, but when you say it about yourself,
1: eh. Yeah, we don't <laughs> like it. Also Kai in Australia bought us a coffee and sent a lovely message saying, hey lads, Uh, we're called boys. I thought I'd reach out to say thank you for the podcast. I was looking for an entertaining Japan news podcast, trying to keep up to date with my second home. Your podcast never actually fulfilled that need. But alas, you got a laugh out of me. So I subscribed and ended up becoming a member on Buy Me A Coffee. And besides, some of the conversations were genuinely interesting and intriguing. (laughs) Okay, we'll take it. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, One of the best, personally for me, is the show is about raising mixed race kids in Japan. Thanks for the entertainment. You've got me through some rough shifts this year. I
0: look forward to more laughs next year. Thank you very much, Kai. We hope to do the same. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, We've got new members. Sam, Tim joined as a member. Jake joined as a member. And Jake wrote, uh, say something nice, which is our prompt. Uh, And then he says that to say something nice is asking a lot of the Bryans. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, we also need to say thank
1: you to Aaron Kamara, uh, to Anne Kilzer, uh, who said that she needed to get on that boat. Anne, you're so welcome. We've been saving you a seat. Uh, and uh, in addition to those new members, Ryan also claimed one of the boys. I will get that in the mail to you this week,
0: Ryan. Um,
1: to be clear, that's a sticker pack. To anyone that's yeah. listening to the show for the first time, Ryan claimed one of the boys. And then Bobby's <laughs> saying, Okay I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get that to you soon. Uh, sounds bad. Stickers, no, stickers and
0: magnets. And also uh, to Bo Sorensen, who won our New Year's giveaway. Uh, He was the only one who entered, so he won everything. (laughs) He'll he'll get get a sticker pack, he'll get uh, buy his book, and he'll get uh, Anne's calligraphy. And that'll go out uh, in a package, and uh, it will go by boat. Um, Not because of the podcast that we are, but because that's the only way that Japan is shipping anything right now. So expect it uh, to take a while, dude. But thanks so
1: much, uh, everyone, for listening to our Bumper Christmas show. We loved all the lovely feedback you sent us. And thanks so much for sticking around in this 2022 year, the final year of the pandemic, the year that everything's going to get good again. Season four, <laughs> baby. And with that, Bobby, shall we jump into the news? Ooh.
0: Bobby Judo, for the first time in 2022... What's in the news this week? Well, although we've seen some minor positive developments in terms of foreign entry restrictions, uh, government policy and public sentiment in Japan still favors the extremely strict, which of course precludes foreign tourism. Uh, With Japan possibly close to declaring a new state of emergency, we wanted to start the show by asking, Alex, how is the tourist industry weathering the now two-year-long pandemic?
2: Well, it's been a disaster.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, Kyoto is very hard hit. Everybody's hard hit. How That said, domestic tourism has picked up a certain amount of the slack. And for example, down in yeah. Ia, in Shikoku, where we have these old thatched houses up on a mountainside, we've done reasonably well, surprisingly well. But of course, it's the ultimate social distancing. I mean, you know, you're this thatched house and the nearest other house is, uh, you know, a mile away. And you're not sharing the house with anybody else. And so people who were afraid of going to Kyoto, maybe, are Mm -hmm. willing to go to Shikoku. So there are these niches where the local tourism industry has done not too badly.
1: Presumably, this is not good for the country as a whole, which benefited from outside money coming in. But it's good for these pockets of of Japan, which had the majority of their economy based on tourism. You're saying they're kind of staying afloat with Japanese people traveling internally.
2: And actually Kyoto this fall was packed. So uh, the domestic tourism has been very strong in Kyoto. One of the things that happened, again, this is due to the mismanagement issues of over-tourism and the crowding because of the foreigners who are packing into these Zen temples and so on. There was a big decline over the last four years of Japanese going to Kyoto.
0: Mm -hmm. because it
2: was just no fun. Suddenly, the foreigners weren't there anymore. People were quiet and well-behaved. They could go to these temples and enjoy them. There was a big pickup. And so uh, fall of this year, Arashiyama and the bamboo path and all those things were absolutely packed with Japanese tourists.
0: When you were on uh, Oscar's show, the deep dive for Japan Times, I think you said you quoted some numbers about how all of tourism in Japan, actually like eight, 80 or 90% of it is, is domestic.
2: Well, yes, that had been. Now, the, the, all this said, the tremendous blow that was struck to inbound tourism is an economic huge problem for this country. Japan right. had become actually... Surprisingly dependent on tourism for the first time ever, and so they they need it desperately. They need to get it back. Uh, that's certainly not going to happen soon because <laughs> we've yeah. entered a new sakoku. Ali, uh, do you know yeah. that word? It, it, yeah. Yeah. It's the word. Yeah. It's the word for when they closed Japan, and and they've it, it, sort of. I think the uh, population has jumped on it with glee because now yeah. they can finally have sakoku and not feel guilty about it. <laughs>
0: yeah well the the population does seem to support um the the entry bans one thing that i found i mean you talked about we've now entered a second sakoku jidai but um when you were on oscar's show i think he referred to uh the foreign tourism ban as a brief window and this is this so you were on the show almost a year ago now and i i remember kind of like the optimism of that phrase listening to it recently. That idea that this was going to be a brief window. It wasn't so
1: brief. We made this point when, when we, um, we did an episode with Rochelle about the initial entry ban. And we posted this show in our briefing document that we sent to guests. And I annotated it with, this is an episode we recorded in the middle of the pandemic. When actually we were like four <laughs> weeks in. <laughs> Thinking
2: about Japan and, and the way they're handling it, they've panicked. And the thing is, I'm actually for strict entry controls. But, you know, Australia, Thailand, places like that, if you're vaccinated and you can prove it, unlike certain tennis stars, if you uh, are tested before, during, and after, and so on, you can go. Thailand allows people to go. They also make you stay for two weeks in an expensive hotel, but it is possible.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about this on the show dozens of times before now, that if... These measures were actually for the benefit of public health, and they would have been implemented very, 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 very differently. Uh, let's uh, let's start twenty twenty two with a positive note and not not
0: dwell on that again. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of of kind of the pandemic creating these shifts in the way uh, Japan does tourism, Alex, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was. Um, kind of this initiative that you started of of repurposing these older Japanese homes which has blown up over the last handful of years into a full on boom um kominka uh, kominka Saisei, uh, Kominka mm-hmm. reform, old Japanese house reform has become a buzzword. Uh, Akiya yes. has become a buzzword. Mm-hmm. You see all of these stories in the international media about, you know, the mm-hmm. house you can pick up for $500. What What do you think about the way that kind of this initiative that you've started has, has evolved and become mainstream?
2: I think it's very exciting because J- Akiya is a huge social problem for Japan. Uh, there are 10 million Akiya abandoned houses in Japan as we speak rising in the next 10 years to 20 million. Mm. Now, not all of those are worth saving, but still, even if only a fraction are, that's a huge cultural heritage that will be lost if these things aren't better cared for.
1: For people that can't picture what these are, are these like completely desolate haunted houses? Are they livable? What are they?
2: Akia simply means abandoned house. It means people don't live there anymore, and there's a tremendous range. And so if the old grandmother lived there until yesterday, it's in reasonable shape. If people have moved away, and especially with old Japanese wooden architecture, it doesn't take long before the damp starts to get to it. Then you get into structural troubles and leaky roofs and rotten floorboards and so on. It's a, it's quite a range. But one of the points that's kind of critical to this story is there's this myth it's been that many Japanese believe in, because it, and certainly foreigners, and it's a favorite uh, item of belief of architects internationally, mm. which is that Japan never built permanently. Things were built, it was scrap and build, you know. Yeah,
1: I've said this on the show before. That is so wrong. Oh, dear.
2: That is so wrong. That is Well, I won't <laughs> say it's wrong. It's true after World War II. It is true today. Right. Right. But it was not true for traditional architecture in Japan, which was built to last forever and did. There's a reason right. why Japan has the world's oldest wooden buildings in Hodeji. Yeah. My house, mm. in Chiori, in Ia Valley is now over 300 years old. It gained about 100 years after I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, my house that I live in in Kamioka is, is also about 300 years old. As long as people lived in them and cared for them, Japanese wooden architecture won't is perfectly
1: sound. So that's the critical thing then, that these houses, once someone stops living in them and, and heating them and making sure they don't get damp and making sure that pests don't come in, then there's a bit of a ticking time bomb that otherwise livable, beautiful houses within the matter of a decade can become ruin.
2: Precisely. And I've, mm. uh, of course, restored many uh, ruin. But there's another issue, which is the houses have... Uh, one reason why they're worth saving is that Japan developed the most sophisticated wooden architecture in the world. Mm. A lot of other places have done wooden architecture. Nobody carried it to this high point that Japan did. That said, yeah. they did not have proper heating, ventilation, uh, you know, uh, water systems, uh, toilets, baths, all of that is pretty primitive. and the houses, right. as you find them, are not for us modern people really livable
0: so speaking about these myths of japanese architecture is there the possibility that we're seeing the birth of a new one like when you see the proliferation of these Akiya stories in the foreign media you know I, I bought a japanese house in the countryside for five dollars um th- the past couple of years all of my local tv work i'd say maybe a fourth of it has been going to see some local area where they've they've developed the akia into a cafe or they've made it into a hotel or they've made an airbnb or something along those lines and when you talk to the people who did this they've gotten a grant from the government and they've poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into making it livable they didn't buy a house for five dollars they bought a massive
1: liability for hundreds of thousands of dollars
2: (laughs) Yeah, basically, you pay five dollars and you get a wonderful black hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- there are two ways that these things happen, and the official ones, the ones that uh, the media go to, which are you know have the cafes and the fancy uh, I- internal developments, and they're very spiffy. Uh, and and I have to say, a lot of the ones that I've done were done as government projects. They have these enormous budgets, and yeah. anything anything goes. But there's now a huge amount of private ownership of these minka, people doing it on their own. A lot of it is mm-hmm. handmade. There's a lot of vendors out there selling specialized materials to do it. There are minka societies and minka Facebook uh, groups, etc. and private people, especially foreigners, are starting to pour a lot of money into this. And so
0: there there is a paradigm shift. Do, do you think, what percentage of kind of the future of Japanese tourism do you think will involve these properties?
2: I think quite a bit. Uh, You know, when people say to me, oh, this is so revolutionary and how did you have this crazy idea? (laughs) And I say, come on, in Europe, they've been doing it for 150 years, go to Tuscany, Yeah, yeah. you know, go go to San Francisco even, or, uh, you know, uh, the idea of fixing up old houses and making them livable, comfortable, and pleasant. And then people would go there to find their escape in the countryside. That's been around a very long time. And so Japan actually was an outlier among developed countries. It was the only one that had never done that, that saw old houses as useless junk. And so they Mm. finally kind of entered the mainstream and are doing now what is done in the rest of the civilized world.
0: As you've often pointed out in your work, so much of Japan's economy is dependent on new construction projects. Economically speaking, do you think there are any downsides to this kind of uh, rebuilding old houses boom? Well, first
2: of all, most of that construction is about roads and dams Mm -hmm. and building enormous Olympic stadiums and things like that. So (laughs) the amount of it that's about building new houses is relatively modest. And in particular, if a few thousand machia get restored, That's such a tiny drop in the bucket when Mm. it comes to the construction industry that I think it's neither here nor there. But as far as the tourist industry goes, the impact is huge.
0: Uh, Since you brought up the Olympic stadiums, um, I wanted to ask, uh, I'm sure you followed the story of the development of Yoyogi Park. And and I think some of these more recent developments, I mean, the Yoyogi Park story would have been right at home in a chapter of Dogs and Demons. That was I'm hilarious, wasn't it?
2: <laughs> well, they were going to tear down a big section of the park to build a concrete space where people could watch the Olympics on a screen or something. It was bizarre. Right. That's right.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> those those, tre- those trees were getting in the way of a yeah. screen we haven't yet built. Well, that was that was right around the time when they were just figuring out that the only way you were going to be able to see it was on a screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, has have you had kind of any evolution in your thinking around why the government either moves forward with or refuses to reverse directions on projects like these, especially when the public is, is opposed or...?
2: You know, in Dogs and Demons, I had said that Japan's systems are like a big machine with an on, on button but no off. Mm. And so it's n- zillions of things. The planting of the sugi cedar trees, which is such an environmental disaster. Uh, you know all these issues. It was something that was decided in 1957 or whatever, and can never be changed. The budget is there forever. Everybody knows that sugi is a disaster, but we must plant more sugi. And unfortunately, this, the the political system does not really allow the voice of the public much say. The bureaucrats are
0: riding far above it in their bubble. Mm. So why don't we see more? I know it exists, especially um, where it affects people's livelihoods, but why don't, why don't we see more preservation activism or activism around these issues?
2: Well, you know, that's part of the result of the educational system, which, was, which Japan is now paying dearly for. So there was an educational system, again, set up in the 50s, which was to create a nation of obedient hard workers who would go to the factories. And turn screws on the factory floor and Mm. it worked they got that obedient workforce so then what happened you get post 90s you need entrepreneurs you need uh, people that are uh, create the new unicorns and start their businesses and maybe join an international uh, organization maybe study abroad all that stuff and they don't have it because people were trained not to do that not to think in those terms and so japan has a very very weak nonprofit sector japanese are not much involved for example in un agencies compared to other uh, nationalities uh, they no there's been a lot of writing lately on how japanese don't want to study abroad if you go to harvard you'll see the indians the chinese the koreans and so on you won't see japanese mm. um, that that's the result of an educational system that taught people to be complacent and do what they were told.
1: Yeah, I see your point, but just hold off, because if loads more Japanese people go and work and live abroad, there'll be even more empty
0: houses to fill, creating an even bigger problem. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the big paradoxes of Japan uh, is that Japan itself prides itself so much on Japanese history, Japanese culture, Japanese nature, all of these things that the government is actively erasing. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering... What do you think about the average Japanese person? Do you think the average Japanese person values those things enough to do something about the erasure? Uh,
2: Well, the quick answer is obviously no, when you look at Mm. the damage done to cities and countryside. And remember, again, people were trained to be complacent. And also it has to do with how you're educated and how you've grown up. So if you've grown up in a damaged environment filled with concrete and wires and plastic and, and the blue sheeting in the middle of the fields and the rest of it, that's life. That is nature. So I think it's very difficult, and I don't blame it all on the government. I think a huge amount of this has to do with the general public, mm. and that's the downside. But to be a little more optimistic, the fact that there are people now that are wanting to stay in the Minka, Right, getting interested in buying the Minka. We have young people moving into Kamioka, for example, from Yok- Yokohama or whatever, and they mm. come because they're rice paddies and old houses. The fact that there is that group and they're just rediscovering it in a sense, there there is a bit of promise.
0: I, I hope that that promise works out. When we talked in the extras, um, we asked about Buddhism, and you summarized Buddhism for us as saying life is tough, but whatever. And in terms of Japanese complacency, I think we might be able to see how that religious belief could backfire a little bit.
1: <laughs> it's really hard to maintain these old houses, but well, whatever. Well, you know,
2: but Buddhism has that other side—the the bodhisattva who is supposed to help other people, yeah, yeah, and bring us all enlightenment. So you need to be a bodhisattva who will uh, happily um, contribute one's entire earthly uh, wealth to restoring an old house. You'll have nothing left, but the house will be beautiful.
0: That's exactly what I asked people to do with my crowdfunding.
1: Hey, thanks very much for listening to episode one of season four, episode 112 of Japan by River Cruise. We will be back every Friday,
0: every week for The foreseeable. Thank you very much to our guest this week. Alex, uh, in the extras and in the show, we talked a lot about Finding the Heart Sutra, Dogs and Demons. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your latest book? The latest one is called Another Bangkok. It just came out
2: a few months ago. And I think for people living in Japan, it might be of interest because I really show
0: how these two cultures are amazingly similar. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we will see you next week.